Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hi everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors at Exilic, and I'm gonna welcome you to our community and our online service today, especially if it's your first time here. Well, you may have heard the famous expression, never talk about religion and politics at the dinner table. Well, for the next four weeks, I'm gonna break that rule because all we are going to talk about for the next four weeks is faith and politics. And I, for one, am personally excited to embark on this new series because I've never been the kind of person that was actually enthusiastic or excited to talk about politics. Philosophy, theology, sports, you know, travel, food, yes, love talking about that stuff, but politics, uh, not so much. And a part of the reason for that is because my story uh, is an immigrant story. And what is the immigrant story? Study hard, get good grades, get a good job, make a lot of money, have a slice of the American dream. And therefore, I sort of saw voting, politics as extracurricular optional things that other people are called to do, but not me. And so I never saw politics, engaging in politics, as one of the primary ways that I could actually love my neighbor. But thankfully, over the course of time, God has been leading me on a journey, not only through thinking through issues of racial justice, but he's also been taking me on a journey through politics, for which I'm really grateful. And based upon a lot of my conversations, I get the feeling that I am not the only one that he is taking on a journey. And so for the next four weeks, we are gonna talk about the intersection of faith and politics. And here's why talking about this inside the church is so important. The reason why this is important is because we will all be either shaped by the world or we will be shaped by the word. Okay, our minds are not like a piece of brick. Our minds are like clay, which is very malleable, formable, and shapeable. So our minds are constantly being discipled, shaped, and formed by one thing or another. And so whether it's you know a post that you see on social media, an article that you read, a five-minute YouTube clip that you see of Joe Rogan or uh, Trevor Noah, Stephen Colbert, whoever your favorite cultural prophet might be, uh, an athlete that you respect, a musician that's singing a song about something, we are constantly being catechized, discipled, shaped, and formed by different things. And we will either be shaped by the world or we will be shaped by the word. And I think the reason why this is so important to talk about is that as I think about my own 
church experience, which goes back, you know, 30, 40 years, I am hard pressed to think of a time where I actually heard the church talk about politics in a very intentional way. If anything, it was always demonized. It was never, um, it was never viewed as a way of uh, an opportunity of loving our neighbors. And I think the irony in this is that the Bible is actually a political book. But what I want to suggest to you is that it's unlike any political book we've ever read in our history classes. And so when you think about, for example, what Jesus says when he says that I am a king and my kingdom is not of this world, what is that? That's a political statement. Or when the book of Psalms says the Lord reigns, not Caesar, not America, that's a political statement. When God says, behold, I will make all things new in a way that no social policy can, what is that but a political statement? And so the Bible in many ways is a political statement book. And so it has a lot to say about the intersection of faith and politics. And so my ambitious goal for the next four weeks is to give us a more robust political theology. And I realize political theology might sound a bit of an oxymoron, but again, in many ways, the Bible is a political book. Uh, Thibidi Anibile, who is a pastor uh, in our nation's capital, uh, he says that just because we are gospel-centered, it does not mean that we are gospel only. And what he means by that is that, yes, the, the, the core story of the Bible is the gospel, but the Bible also talks about the ramifications for the gospel as well. The Apostle Paul says, I did not shrink back from teaching you the whole counsel of God. And so while the gospel is the center of the whole counsel of God and the main idea, the big idea, the whole counsel of God also talks about the ramifications of what we believe in and how we ought to live as well. So all this to say for the next four weeks, I want this to be a time where the word of God is our true north as we sort of navigate through these turbulent political waters. And I want us to be more shaped by uh, the word instead of the world. And one of the ways that uh, I want to kick off this sermon is first, before we talk about how we can engage politically and what we're called to do, I want to first talk about who we are politically, because we won't know what to do unless we first know who we are. So read with me verse 11, and it says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Christians are foreigners and exiles. And incidentally, this is why the name of our church is exilic, because exilic is the adjectival form of the word exile. And I believe that the word exilic is the one word that best epitomizes the Christian life. So what does it mean to be an exile? It simply means to be away from home. And I'll give you an example of what this looks like. So I mentioned before my story is an immigrant story. We moved to the States when I was two years old. And so I wasn't born a U.S. citizen. I got my citizenship later on in life when I was 22 years old. So from two to 22, I was not a U.S. citizen. So what was I? Uh, I wasn't a citizen, but on the other hand, I wasn't exactly a foreigner because I was basically born and raised here. So what was I in that in-between stage? I was a resident alien. And what is a resident alien? They are someone that lives in one country, but their citizenship is in another country. And that is what Christians politically are. We live in one country, 
but our citizenship is in another country. And when you understand and embrace that political identity as resident aliens, you know what that's going to mean? That as Christians, as resident aliens, we will always feel politically uncomfortable here. To quote Tim Keller's piece in the New York Times article, where do Christians fit in the two-party system? They don't. And the reason for that is because our citizenship, again, is from somewhere else. I would actually say, I would actually put it this way. If you're a Christian and you feel very comfortable with your political party, what that probably means is that you are more aligned with your po political party than the Word of God itself. And the reason why I say that is because no political party represents in a holistic way everything that the Bible has to say. No political party does. And so, you know what that means? No Christian should ever say Christians should only belong to this party or that party, or Christians should only vote for this person or that person, because again, no party has exclusive domain on what Christianity uh, has to say. And so what that really means is that Christians should flood both parties. Um, and yet, as we flood both parties, to the left and to the right, we should also be able to maintain a sense of unity in the midst of our diversity, which isn't really happening right now. And the reason why we should be able to maintain a unity in the midst of our diversity is because our creed is not one Lord, one faith, one political opinion. Our creed is one Lord, one faith, one baptism with many political opinions. And so we should really flood both parties and there should be room for Christians to dialogue in uh, on both sides. And so if you feel uh, politically uncomfortable as a Christian, that's actually a good thing. It probably means that you understand and you embrace your identity as a resident alien. Let me give you a historical example of this. Uh, in the first century, uh, there was a Roman historian named Suetonius. Suetonius was not a Christian, but one of the observations that he made about Christians was that they were sort of a different kind of species or genus. And the reason why he referred to Christians as a sort of different kind of human species is because Christians of the first century world were both liberal and conservative. And therefore, they were too liberal for their conservative friends, and they were too conservative for their liberal friends. And this is what Suetonius says. He says Christians are too liberal, and the reason for that is because they don't want to serve in the military to serve Caesar's wars of conquest. So they didn't serve in the military. Additionally, Christians liberally gave away their possessions and their money to the poor. And Christians empowered women that they weren't second-class citizens. So Christians were very liberal. On the other hand, Suetonius says, I don't get it because they're also very conservative. They don't practice abortion or infanticide. They don't practice sex outside of marriage. And Christians are monotheistic. They're not polytheistic. And so they're very narrow-minded instead of being open-minded. They're very exclusive instead of being very inclusive. They're very, very conservative. And Suetonius just didn't understand how these group of people could hold these multiple tensions at the same time. They either had to be one or the other, but they were able to hold both tensions at the same time, which is why Suetonius referred to Christians as a different kind of genius and species altogether. And you know what? Not only were Christians aliens back then, we are still aliens today. We do not fit in one box, do we? Uh, we are sort of the original hipsters in the sense that we are nonconformists.
Uh, I like what Pastor Rick Warren says when he says that uh, I am not left wing, I am not right wing, but I am for the whole bird. Let me phrase it another way, the opposite way. Christians are not left, Christians are not right, Christians are not middle, as if being moderate was, you know, the right thing to do all the time. We are not left, we are not right, we are not middle, but our kingdom ethics come from above. And the reason, again, for that is because we are resident aliens. We live here, but our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. And yet, you know what's really interesting? Listen to what Peter has to say. Even though we are foreigners and exiles here, look at verse 13 and 14. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And so even though our citizenship is ultimately in heaven, we are also called to be good citizens of earth. So we're not only supposed to have a pilgrim mentality, but we're also supposed to have a political mentality. In other words, Christians are called to be political pilgrims, which actually sounds like the great, a great title of an article or book if any of you want to write it. We're called to be political pilgrims. And one way that we can practice being a political pilgrim is by submitting to every earthly human authority. Now, what are the three authorities that Scripture talks about? It's the family, the church, and the state. Now, I'm not going to touch the family and the church. We'll do that for another time. But I do want to talk about the state and the government because we are called to submit to the government. And the reason why we're called to submit to the government is, again, Peter says that the point of the government and the reason why God made it is to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And in many ways, this is a biblical view of what justice is. It is both retributive and it is restorative. And so the reason why God creates the institution of the government is to both protect and to punish. And so even though the government is not a Christian institution, nonetheless, it is still an institution that God has made. And while the church is sort of an institution that dispenses saving grace through the preaching of the word, the point of the government is to dispense common grace to all people and to show grace to, by protecting and serving, by punishing those who do wrong, and by protecting those who, or commending those who do right. Now, automatically, as modern people, I know that when we hear the word submit, it leaves a bitter taste in our mouths. And it leaves a, an even more bitter taste in our mouths when we're talking about submitting to the government. Because as modern people, and this is kind of telling of the times that we live in right now, as modern people, we're automatically thinking, but what if the government is not acting the way that God created it to be? What if it's not punishing and protecting the right people, but it's punishing and protecting the wrong people? Then what are we supposed to do? Where do we draw the line? Are we still supposed to submit? And let me just, just give you a few examples of civil disobedience in the Bible. Hebrew midwives, they disobeyed Pharaoh's orders and they saved this baby named Moses. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobeyed King Nebuchadnezzar's orders. Queen Esther disobeyed uh, the king's orders by charging into his chambers to 
plead with him to reverse an irreversible policy. And so throughout scriptures, we see acts of civil disobedience, but we not only see it in scripture, we see it throughout history, obviously as well. Um, probably the second most famous German theologian is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer behind uh, Martin Luther. And while Bonhoeffer was a brilliant uh, theologian and pastor, what most people don't know about Bonhoeffer's story is that he was actually involved in a coup d'etat, uh, planning the assassination of Adolf Hitler. And he was a pastor, and yet he was involved in this coup d'etat. I think about one of my personal heroes that's alive today, Pastor Wang Yu, who is a pastor in mainland China. Uh, and as you know, China, there is no freedom of religion or freedom of assembly. And yet he still met with his congregation uh, every week. And to this day, he is still in jail and in a marvelous piece that uh, he wrote prior to, just prior to his imprisonment, he wrote an essay called My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. And so there are times and there are occasions where we should disobey. And so the question again is, okay, so where do we draw the line? And again, I would point you to what the purpose of government is. The purpose of government is to protect and to punish. It is to punish those who do wrong, protect those who do right. And what that means is that if the government has those uh, priorities out of whack and they're punishing and protecting the wrong people instead of the right people, that's when there is a line that we can cross and we should protest and we should, we should, we should uh, do whatever we can to change different policies. Uh, furthermore, as Christians, I would say that if being a good citizen means you being a bad Christian, again, that's a line that is drawn where we should not submit. If submitting to an earthly authority means that we do not submit to heavenly, a heavenly authority, again, that's where the line is drawn in the sand. But the general rule of thumb, the general rule of thumb is for us to submit uh, to our governing authorities, even if we might disagree with what they're saying. But that's not the only way for us to practice our uh, political pilgrimness. It's not only through submitting, but it's also through acting as well. And this is what Peter says in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. I like what one of my pastor friends says when he says that the Bible talks about two great things. It talks about the great commandment and it talks about the great requirement. What is the great commandment? The great commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, if you've grown up in the church, what I just said went one ear and out the other and it has absolutely no staying power at all. And so let me rephrase it another way so what I just said lingers in your head and heart a little bit more. The truth of the matter is there is no one we love more than ourselves. And yet the Bible says that we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now think about what that means for a moment. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now the question then is who is our neighbor? And believe it or not, uh, the Bible actually talks about this, where a very educated lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks him this very question. And the, the response that Jesus gives is the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm not going to rehash that entire story, but the point of the story is 
that everyone is our neighbor, not only our friends, but our enemies. Not only um, people that we like, but people that we dislike. Not only our family, but also strangers. Regardless of someone's sexuality, what their religious beliefs might be, this color of their skin, every person is our neighbor and we are called to love our neighbors who have been made in god's image as ourselves as well and one of the ways that uh, we can do that again is through politics and i don't mean that we just vote once every four years although that's very important but one way to love our neighbors is on a more consistent level. So not only once every four years at that high level, but also on a more lower level where we individually care for the poor, care for the marginalized, volunteer at different things. Uh, another way of um, loving our neighbors is by raising awareness about different issues and posting about it. Another way of loving our neighbors is being mindful and very intentional about the way that we spend our time our money and our talents, that we don't use those things just to serve ourselves, but we use uh, whatever God has blessed us with to be a blessing unto other people. The point is that public concern has to always be my private concern. It can't just be the concerns of other people, it has to be my concern because I am my brother's keeper as well. And it has to happen in an ongoing, sustained way, which is why Peter says, let the outside world see our good lives characterized by our good deeds. Let them see that, and that word see does not mean only see once, but it means to see in an ongoing way. And what that means is that as Christians, we have to live lives of sustained excellence in the way that we love other people, even people we might not jive with or agree with. But it's not only enough to um, do the great commandment, we also have to do the great requirement. And what is a great requirement? In Micah 6, 8, it says this, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, one of the things I'm most proud about from this past summer is the formation of our new justice ministry. And I'm so proud of all the people that participated in this ministry as well, because we met 11 times over the course of this summer to think critically about what our mission should be, what our vision should be, how we can best serve the church, and how we can best serve our city. And you'll find out more information about how you can engage with the justice ministry at the end of this year and towards the beginning of the new year as well. But at the heart of, my, uh, at the heart of our justice ministry is Micah 6-8. What do we envision for our church? We want our church to be a kind of people that do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, which is something that we need more than ever before, to walk humbly with our God. And when I think about Micah 6.8, the tangible image that I think about is actually my, my father-in-law. For those of you who don't know my father-in-law, he is one of the most charismatic leaders you will ever meet. And I don't know if there's such a thing as a natural born leader, but he is definitely one of them because people want to follow him wherever he goes, which is why it's not surprising that the church has always asked him to become an elder of the church. And while he did actively, you know, participate in the choir, every week he opened up his home to community groups. Uh, he gave generously to the church. Uh, he also had interests elsewhere, and one of those interests is politics. And even one year ago, he was actually running as a councilman of his town 
because of some of the injustices and corruption that he saw in his town. And so you really should have seen it. The house looked like a, a campaign office. There were shirts with his name on it. There were lawn signs with his face and name on it. There were thousands of flyers and brochures littered all over the living room. And this was his way of doing Micah 6-8. This was his way of loving his neighbor and serving God as well. And you know what's so amazing to me about this story? He was doing this as a first-generation immigrant, and he was being politically involved. But you know what's also amazing to me about this story? Is that if there is one thing that we can all agree on in the midst of our division, whether you're Republican or Democrat, pro-Biden or pro-Trump, if there is one thing that we can all agree on, it is this. We can all agree that the world that we live in is broken. This is part of the reason why our conversations today are so politically charged, because we are all desperately looking for some kind of political hero, liberator, or savior to fix the brokenness that we are all experiencing. But a good student of history, a good one, will tell you this, that the reason why the world is broken is not because of our politics. The real reason why the world is broken is not politics, it's because of people. G.K. Chesterton, the prolific British writer in the early 1900s, was once asked by a London newspaper, what is wrong with the world today? You know what Chesterton's response was? It's very short. And he responded by saying, dear sir, I am. You know what the Christian response is for why the world is broken? It's not that guy in office. It's not those people over there in that party or those people that believe in those policies. That's not the reason why the world is broken. You know what the Christian response is every single time? It is Chestertonian. The reason why the world is broken is because we are broken. I do wonder how you would answer the question if someone were to ask you, why is the world the way that it is today? Why is the world so broken? Is it the guy in the office? Is it people that believe in these policies? Maybe it's, it's Christians, that's why the world is broken. How would you answer that question? The Christian response is always Chestertonian. It's not other people, it's really me. It's all of us, we are all guilty. And therefore, what Chesterton is saying is this, if the world that we live in is broken, because people are broken, the way to fix the world is by first fixing people. And you know how you fix people? It's not through politics. It's not through policies. You know how you really fix people? You first have to fix our broken heart. And there is no politician that could do that save for a one. And his name is Jesus. And that's why he came. So let me tell you a little bit of what this politician is like. He is the ultimate foreigner and exile who left his home in heaven to come down to earth. But the reason why he came down to earth was not to win an election. The reason why he came down to earth was to actually lose his life. He did not come to sit in a White House, but he actually came to hang on a cross. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come to gain power, but he actually came to lose power. And the reason why he did all of that is to die for our sins on a cross, because forgiving our broken hearts is the first step 
in fixing our broken hearts. But the good news of Christianity goes even step further than that, because he did not come just to fix our hearts, but the whole counsel of God says that he also came to fix our world as well. So let me close with one of my favorite stories by C.S. Lewis uh, in a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this story is about a young British girl named Lucy who walks into a room, an empty room, that has one giant wardrobe in the middle of the room, this giant closet. And Lucy opens up the wardrobe and walks in. And there are all these winter coats that are everywhere. And so Lucy is going through the coats and all of a sudden this tiny Lucy is, is going through all the coats. She feels some branches and she's curious as to why there are branches in this wardrobe. And she feels more uh, of the branches and she steps further and further into the wardrobe. She stumbles into this enchanted land called Narnia, a wintry enchanted land. And as Lucy is exploring what Narnia is like. She meets a fawn named Mr. Tumnus. And she asks Mr. Tumnus what Narnia is like. And Mr. Tumnus says that Narnia is an enchanted land, but right now it is disenchanted because of the curse of the wicked white witch who has frozen everything. And Mr. Tumnus says, Narnia now, because of this curse, it is always winter, but it is never Christmas. And Lucy responds by saying, how awful. You know what the Christmas story is ultimately about? Not just Jesus coming 2,000 years ago to die for our sins, but the fact that he is actually coming again. That it is not, it will not always be winter and never Christmas, but the Christian narrative really is really about Jesus Christmas coming again to fix everything that is broken and to reverse the curse of sin. And what that means then as Christians is that even though we live in a very broken world, our, our hope, our ultimate hope is in the greatest politician of all, and that is King Jesus. And so as we walk through this world, uh, our hope is ultimately in what King Jesus uh, will do for us, uh, not only for our hearts, but the world that we live in. And if I can just close um, by, um, by addressing maybe some of you who are not Christian. Um, I mentioned earlier before that um, you know, life is a journey and we are uh, all heading on a journey somewhere, but it is possible for uh, you to journey uh, to, to always be traveling and never be arriving somewhere. And so I want you to consider Christianity because as exiles, we are not the kind of people that are traveling and never arriving. We are, kind, we are the kind of people that are traveling and we are arriving somewhere. But in the secular narrative, you are always traveling and never arriving, aimlessly wandering through life. And if you have the courage to admit it, like most nihilistic philosophers like Nietzsche did, what really awaits you is nothing but six feet of dirt. The Christian story, however, is the good news of what Jesus has done for us and will do again. And it seems to me that in the midst of all the bad news that we hear in 2020, we need this kind of good news more than ever before. 
Let's pray together.